Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life Alright, welcome to another edition of Theology Matters And uh, today we have a very special show We are going to be doing a debate on uh, the question of, uh, is annihilationism uh, biblical? And with us to kind of defend the different uh, propositions we have, um, just to kind of, the way it's framed on the, the Theology Matters page, is the question is, do the lost uh, cease to exist after the judgment, or will they suffer uh, eternal torment? And defending the annihilationist position will be Chris Date. He's a contributor at RethinkingHell.com and host of the Theopologetics podcast. And defending the traditional view of hell will be Michael Willenborg, who's a philosopher and received his uh, master's in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary. So let me go ahead and bring our guests on and let them... Uh, Tell them, tell you guys a little bit about yourself. Uh, Mike and Chris, are you there? Yep. Yeah, Good I'm here. With you, Devin. All Good right, man. Nice, nice to have. Yeah, we we've had Mike on the show a few times before, and it's uh, it's always nice to have Mike back. But uh, we certainly welcome you on the show, Chris. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, did I did I leave anything out or or anything you guys want to say before we kind of give the the format of the debate and then we'll go ahead and start? 
I wouldn't mind if it's okay just letting those that are listening know uh, that if they'd like to, you know, th this debate is going to be a nice primer of sorts, I think, a nice introduction to the topic. Um, if they want to learn more about the perspective that I'll be defending, this is, I'm Chris, <laughs> for those of you uh, listening, if you want to learn more about the annihilationist perspective, um, do, do check out our website at rethinkinghell.com. Our, our primary goal is not to convince people of our view, although that is a secondary one. Our primary goal is to improve the, the quality, the tone, and the tenor of the intramural Christian debate. And that's really what, uh, what I'm hoping will happen as part of this debate is that two brothers will respectfully debate one another. I think it'll be really good. So I just want to encourage listeners to check that out. Great. Michael, did you have anything you wanted to add? Uh, no, just uh, wanted to say to Chris that I've enjoyed reading his uh, material at Rethinking Hell, and I uh, think it is uh, great to be rethinking these issues, as we should always be rethinking and subjecting our beliefs to scrutiny, and I'm Grateful for his holding our feet to the fire, as it were. <laughs> well, thanks for yeah. those comments. I appreciate it, Mike. Yeah, Michael is the pun master, Chris. Uh, before we started, I was talking to him, and he said it should be a hell of a debate. So. <laughs> nice. The pun master, for sure. Um, let, me, let me say this, too, just kind of up front for people. Um, and I think, you know, Mike and Chris, you, you guys both agree that while this is a, a definitely an important issue, uh, we would probably all affirm that we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ and that this is uh, an issue that wouldn't touch on, on one of the essentials, such as the, the doctrine of the Trinity or, or something like that. I mean, this, is a, this would be an in-house debate. Wouldn't, wouldn't you guys agree with that? Absolutely, yes. Yes, definitely. Okay, good. All right, well, this is kind of the, the way the format, the structure is going to be. I've talked with uh, the, the debate, uh, our debaters, uh, as to what the structure is going to be. We're going to have uh, each of them give a 10-minute opening, and then from there, uh, I think we talk, Chris, and you're going to, you're going to do the first cross-exam of 15 minutes with Michael. And it's going to be kind of an informal, you know, it's, not going, to, it's going to be a little looser, uh, but whoever is time it is on the cross-exam will be the one that gets to kind of guide and direct the conversation. After Chris's uh, cross-exam, Mike will get 15 minutes to do a cross-exam, and then that will bring us probably to the second hour, um, and then we'll do about three uh, questions uh, if there's time. Uh, if not, we'll just do two questions. And after each of the uh, debaters asks the question, We'll set aside 10 minutes or so for them to kind of go back and forth in dialogue. So uh, any anything else? Does that, does that sound about right, guys? Sounds, Sounds good. good to me. All right. Uh, Chris, are you ready to do your, your opening statement? I am. All right. Um, and you can begin at any time. Okay, thank you, uh, Devin and Melissa, for having me on your show. I don't know if Melissa's on the call right now, but thank you both for having me on the show. And thank you as well, Mike, for what I'm confident is going to be a friendly and respectful conversation between two brothers in Christ. The question that we're seeking to answer is, does the Bible teach annihilationism? And let me first say that I was insistent that it be posed as a question of what the Bible teaches, because my emphasis is on exegesis and on what the Bible says. 
But I do invite Michael to offer philosophical and theological challenges to annihilationism, and I'm happy to respond to them. But I just want to say that conclusions from those disciplines are ultimately only valid insofar as they are biblical. Also, let me explain just what annihilationism is. That label is a relatively modern term for a much more ancient view, one held, by, uh, held and taught by notable church fathers from the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and even 4th centuries, a view for which English terminology exists that's older than annihilationism. And I'm referring to the phrase conditional immortality, or conditionalism for short. Our view is that man is not innately immortal, and that immortality is conditional upon God giving it. Both the saved and the lost are going to rise from the dead at the resurrection, but God's only going to give the gift of immortality to his people. And since those who are not his will not be given immortality, they will not live forever. Now, this is in stark contrast to the traditional view of hell, in which, according to John Gill, the lost shall rise to life to an immortal life, so as to never die anymore. The Belgic Confession says the evil ones shall be made immortal. C.S. Lewis said you have never talked to a mere mortal. John MacArthur says every, every, every human being ever born lives forever. Greg Kokel and Christopher Morgan say that everybody lives forever. Charles Spurgeon said the lost will live forever in torment. Wayne Grudem and Charles Stanley say they will live forever in hell. Gary Habermas and J.P. Moreland say that the unsaved will continue living in a state with a low quality of life, and I could go on and on. Now, we conditionalists believe that the lost will instead rise every bit as mortal as they are now and will not live forever. They will die a second time, and we mean that as plainly and as literally as when we talk about a person dying a first time. But whereas the first death is temporary and entails the death of only the body, the second death will be everlasting and will entail the death of the entire person, body, and soul. This second death is called annihilation because there will be no part of an unsaved person that lives on and they will never live again. So the traditional view is analogous to corporal punishment and annihilationism to capital punishment. It's the difference between an everlasting prison sentence and an irreversible execution. So does the Bible teach this view? Does it teach annihilationism? Well, yes, it does. Let's start with the question of immortality. 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16 tells us that it is the king of kings and lord of lords who alone has immortality. It follows logically, therefore, that fallen human beings are not inherently mortal, immortal. But this is not a New Testament surprise. In Genesis 2.17, God tells Adam that if he eats from the forbidden tree, he would surely die. And even if one thinks that Adam, Adam and Eve spiritually died in some sense on the moment that they ate, it's still only one aspect of the death God had warned about. And we know this because in Genesis 3.22-24, God banishes them from the garden and from the tree of life so that they would not live forever. And at the opposite end of the Bible, in the imagery of the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, only the saved have access to that tree of life, symbolism communicating that only they will live forever. So you see, the hope of immortality, of living forever, was lost in Adam and is found only in relationship with God. Proverbs 12:28 says, In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death, implying that any other path brings death. Romans 2:7 says that to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. So immortality has to be sought after and will not be given to those who do not obey the truth for whom there will instead be wrath and fury. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.10 that our Savior Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He says first, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 that the earthly, perishable, mortal bodies of the saved will be made imperishable and immortal so that we can inherit the kingdom of God. And so we see that whereas the traditional view of hell maintains that the lost will rise with immortal bodies and live forever, the biblical answer to the question of immortality says that immortality is conditional on God giving it and that he'll only give it to the saved. And so, it's no wonder that the Bible consistently, repeatedly, in no uncertain terms, and in a variety of ways, says that the final fate of the lost will be destruction, a complete and irreversible end of life. This certainly appears to be the unanimous Old Testament witness. 
I could spend a lot of time demonstrating that, but I'll just give you a sampling from the Psalms, which indicate that the unsaved will fade and wither like grass, be consumed, be no more, perish, vanish like smoke, be destroyed and cut off, be broken and dashed to pieces, be slain, be blotted out from the book of the living, be blown away like chaff, be like a dream forgotten when one awakens, melt like wax and perish. Now, God's judicial destructive wrath is just not always poured out in these ways on the unrighteous in this life. Many of them, in fact, die in peace and in luxury, and they don't vanish from the sight of the godly. Often it's the other way around. And so I think we have really good reason to see these metaphors as principles of divine justice that will be meted out as part of final punishment. But even if you couldn't buy that, the New Testament just as strongly, in fact more strongly, foretells the final destruction of the unsaved. Jesus, Jesus says in Matthew 10:28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the word translated destroy there consistently means in the synoptic gospels something like slay or kill when it's used in the way that it's used here. In Matthew 7, 13 to 14, Jesus says the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Philippians 3.19 says their end is destruction. 1 Corinthians 3.17 says if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And numerous other examples could be cited. 2 Peter 2.6 and Jude 7 compare the future destruction of the ungodly to the past destruction of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter specifically says that by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Now, interestingly, Jude calls that fire, the fire that came down from heaven and destroyed those cities, eternal fire, which is what Jesus said is the means by which the eternal punishment of Matthew 25:46 would be meted out upon the unsaved. An eternity of punishing is just not what's in view there. Rather, the eternal punishment is the punishment of death, an, an eternal death from which they will never rise to life again. And so it's no wonder that the fate of the lost in that verse is contrasted with eternal life, because unlike the saved, the lost aren't going to live forever. In Mark 9:48, Jesus says that in hell their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, quoting Isaiah 66:24, which says it is the dead bodies or corpses of the men who have rebelled against me whose worm shall not die and whose fire will not be quenched. The picture here is of the corpses of God's slain enemies being consumed by fire and maggots. Unquenchable fire in the Bible is not fire which never dies out. That's not what quench means. It's fire which can't be put out and so irresistibly consumes and devours. In both Ezekiel 20, 47-48, as well as Jeremiah 17, 27, God's fiery wrath will not be quenched, which is why those texts say they will devour trees and palaces, because the fire won't be quenched, so it will devour them, using a Hebrew word which, when describing fire, refers to it completely burning up. And this idiom of unquenchable fire is used in the same way in the New Testament in Matthew 3.12 and Luke 3.17, in which John the baptizer says Jesus will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. If the metaphor were clear enough, the word translated burn or burn up is a Greek word meaning to burn up, to completely consume. Now, the trickier idiom is the worm which will not die, but the reality is that it communicates the same point as the scavenging beasts and birds in Jeremiah 7.33 and Deuteronomy 28.26, scavengers which can't be frightened away, from the corpses that they feed upon. And so because they can't be frightened away, they'll completely devour them. Now, these were just a handful of the many different ways in which the Bible clearly teaches the final fate of the lost is destruction and an everlasting end of life, which is what one would expect given what we've seen concerning immortality. And as I'm sure we'll discover later in our discussion, other common proof texts traditionally used to support the traditional view of hell prove upon closer examination to be teaching the same thing as all these other, other texts that we've looked at. 
And so it's no wonder that the Bible says that as our penal substitute, Jesus, Jesus bore the punishment of death in our place. Death in the ordinary sense of that word. Isaiah 53, 5 is famous, he was pierced for our transgressions. It's followed in verses 8 and 9 by he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. And so Paul says in Romans 5, 6, and 8 that at the right time Christ died for the ungodly and that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul calls this the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, writing, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul writes again of him who for their sake died and was raised. Peter likewise says in 1 Peter 3.18 that Christ also suffered once for sins, being put to death in the flesh. Now, if Jesus was punished in our place and on our, on our behalf as our substitute so that we won't have to bear that punishment ourselves, then since that punishment was death, those who must bear their punishment themselves will likewise be punished with death in the ordinary sense of that word. So, as I wrap up, remember that as our conversation progresses, the difference between annihilationism and the traditional view of hell is a simple one. Whereas the traditional view is that the bodies of the risen wicked will be rendered immortal and they will live forever in hell, the Bible teaches, on the other hand, that immortality is, a conditional, is conditional on God giving it and that he's only going to give it to the saved and that the risen unsaved will therefore not live forever and will instead die a second time, which is why the punishment that Jesus bore on our behalf was death. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Chris. That was your 10-minute opening, and now we'll go ahead and move to Mike. Mike, are you ready? Uh, yes. I just want to uh, begin by uh, thanking you and Melissa for helping to organize this. Uh, also, thank you to Chris for agreeing to participate. I, uh, as you, anticipate a friendly and lively constructive discussion. Uh, in terms of the arguments which I would advance for what's been called the traditional view. The first of these is more of a reductio of what I take to be the annihilationist position, as we've just heard it uh, very eloquently stated. If we presume that a finite degree of suffering followed by physical death is indeed the punishment that is due to us on account of our sins, <clears throat> then it follows that God could fulfill the demands of justice by simply allowing the wicked to undergo whatever sort of suffering for a finite period that their sins have called for, followed by their physical death, upon which, according to Chris's view, they cease to exist. And God could then resurrect them, and having resurrected them, they will have fulfilled the demands of justice. They will be able to go on, continue living, perhaps uh, at least nominally pleasant lives. And then, if they continue to sin, God could, at another period, say 10 years perhaps, annihilate them again, or if they need to be called before some sort of tribunal to face judgment. He could he could arrange that sort of thing, at which point they are killed once more, only to be resurrected again, and thus the justice uh, is fulfilled, and yet they continue to go on existing. And this seems like a scenario which would be more in keeping with the 
the value and the goodness of God's creation. And so if this sort of scenario is metaphysically possible, and it seems that on Chris's own terms this sort of view would be possible, then this is in fact the sort of scenario that we would see Scripture endorsing. Uh, it seems to me that a view on which the wicked don't have to be eternally destroyed is a uh, better fate for them than it, or is a worse fate, or, yes, a better fate for them than if they are resurrected uh, intermittently so as to fulfill the requirements of justice and then allowed to continue to live at least nominally pleasant lives so that if this were possible, this would in fact be what Scripture endorses. But of course, neither of us agree that this is what Scripture endorses. Therefore, I take it that uh, the punishment owed to God on account of our sin is not um, some finite period of suffering followed by physical death. It is, in fact, a certain kind of torment, a, a kind of torment which, in the case of mere human beings, must last uh, forever, although in the case of Christ, he being God was able to bear this sort of torment for a period of three hours and as a necessary consequence of the torment that he was subjected to, uh, he died. And so given that this is not uh, the view of punishment that annihilationism endorses, this seems to constitute a reductio of the annihilationist position. My second argument for the traditionalist view has to do with the intrinsic value of human existence. I take it we would all agree that uh, human life is intrinsically valuable. That is to say that it's valuable as such, regardless of its uh, particular state or particular manifestation or particular quality. But from this it follows that no matter the condition in which the wicked might find themselves, their existence is valuable to God. And thus, he would be led to maintain their existence and to continue to value their existence. And of course, he can't value their existence if they no longer exist. So this seems to me to entail that the wicked do not cease to exist, that they are forever preserved in existence by God. And then when we conjoin this position with the passages which talk about weeping and gnashing of teeth, you have Matthew 8, 12, and others. You combine those two, and you end up with the wicked existing in a state of uh, sorrow uh, perpetually. And, of course, Chris himself believes that the suffering of the wicked will precede their eventual death and annihilation. Now, Chris, in his writing has attempted to address this argument, or at least a variant of it offered by J.P. Moreland. And what he says is that Moreland's argument, and I take it he would, he would level this against the argument I've just uh, put forth, that this assumes that the only reason one would uh, have for annihilating the wicked is if one views them as sort of means or, you know, one wishes to uh, 
relieve their suffering and all this. Chris's point is that it may well be that the demands of justice simply are that the wicked undergo everlasting destruction. Of course, that can't be exactly what's going on, because Jesus himself fulfilled the demands of justice, and he did not undergo everlasting destruction. Uh, and so I, I don't think that reply is, in fact, open to Chris, but I'll leave that to uh, cross-examination. My third argument has to deal with uh, divine love. Love, whatever else it may be, involves the willing of the good of the beloved. And if we take it, and I think this is a biblical premise, uh, if we take it that God loves the wicked, then he always wills what is good for them, even if by means of their own choices they're prevented from attaining what is good for them, God nevertheless continues to will what is good for them uh, in virtue of the fact that he continues to love them. However, one can't very well will the good for someone if that someone doesn't exist. So if God is to love the wicked, he must preserve them in existence. And again, when you conjoin this with the depiction of the state of those in outer darkness, at least for a while, as Chris himself will agree, as a state in which there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, then it follows from this that the wicked will be preserved forever in a state of uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth, however precisely one wants to uh, view those uh, depictions. And so you have these three arguments. I'll leave it to the cross-examination periods to get into addressing uh, Chris's arguments. And so with that, I give it over to you, Devin. All right. That was the ten-minute opening there. Mike didn't quite use up all your time, but but that's okay. We can always use an extra minute or so. So I guess at this point we will go ahead and move into the time of cross-examination. And this is where Chris will be able to kind of dictate uh, the flow of the conversation. And it's up to Chris. Uh, you know, Chris, if you want to interact with Michael or if you just want him just to answer questions, you, you can kind of decide where you want to go with that. But I'll go ahead and uh, turn it over to you, Chris. All right, thanks. Uh, and thank you as well, Mike. Uh, I have a few short preliminary questions for you, and then I want to sort of explore a little bit more some issues with you in greater depth. And the first question that I have for you is that, um, and I, I suspect based on your opening statement that I have an idea of how you might answer this, most traditionalists that I've spoken to have said that hell is a place where God withholds every blessing, everything that's good and valuable from the lost. Is that something that you would agree with? I'm certainly inclined toward that view. Uh, for the sake of this discussion, yeah, I'll, I'll adopt that view. I, don't, I mean, I'm open okay. to what exactly the nature of the sure. format might, yeah, well, might entail. I don't want to be committed necessarily to one particular construal over that. Uh, okay. But for the sake of discussion, I'll, I'll say yes, that's what uh, is involved. Okay. What is a corpse? What is a corpse? Yes. A corpse would be a, a I suppose, a hunk of uh, flesh that is no longer uh, animated by... Uh, or that is no longer living. It would be a formerly inhabited body, however you construe those sorts of things. Okay. 
Can a corpse experience pain? Physical can a pain. corpse experience pain? Um, Physical pain. Not a corpse as such. I mean, you might, depending on your philosophical anthropology, you might think that a dead person can. But uh, uh, let, let me let me clarify. Can a corpse experience physical pain? Um, not as a physical corpse. I mean, the the, the individual might experience the same sort of sensation as physical pain, again, de de depending on your anthropology. But. Uh, so then, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, a, disembod a disembodied soul could experience physical pain apart from the dead body. Uh, they could experience something analogous to it. Obviously, it wouldn't be physical, I, I know. not embodied. Can they, but, but, can, but can they experience physical pain? Not in the pain sense of being embodied and and experiencing pain as a disembodied soul. That would be a contradiction. The the, the sort of pain that results uh, from however the soul and the body interact when the body transmits yeah, signals okay. to the brain. No, that, is that, no, in that sense they cannot experience physical pain. Okay, and, and why is that? Uh, because if in fact they are disembodied, then there is no interaction from which this pain could be... Uh, brought on can can a can can a previously disembodied soul be reunited with a with a corpse and have that remain a corpse no okay now in the apologetic study bible uh and you might be aware of this given uh your familiarity with my article jp moreland said that quality of life advocates who embrace euthanasia do so because they see the value of physical life and its quality whereas I suspect the position you and I hold, sanctity of life, sees physical life as valuable in and of itself. Do you share that view? That physical life is valuable in and of itself? Yes. Yes. Great. So so just repeat, physical life is valuable in and of itself. Uh, if by physical you mean sort of earthly life, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, whatever a corpse is not. <laughs> oh, you sure. Know, a living body. Okay, yeah. great. All right. So that's good. Uh, I'll come back to those a little bit later. I want to explore in some, some of the time that I have remaining the issue, the concept of mortality, okay? Um, whether or not you think that Genesis, Genesis 2.17's you shall surely die means that Adam and Eve spiritually died in some sense on that day, when God banishes them from the garden from the tree of life in order that they would not, quote, live forever, unquote, would you agree that this meant that they would therefore one day physically die? Yes. So would you agree that their exclusion from the garden and from the lack of access to the tree of life either led to or represents, depending upon how literally you take it, uh, I happen to take it literally, led to or represents man's inability to physically live forever, at least since the fall? Uh, I take it that what it means is that we are not um, inherently immortal, if, if that's what you're getting at. Let me just read the question one more time. It's it's, it's helpful for me uh, to have this okay. a yes or a no, if, if possible. Uh, would you agree then, based on your previous answer, that their exclusion from the tree of life represents or leads to man's inability to physically live forever since the fall? Uh, I would say it leads to their inability to physically live forever on their own, apart from some special act of divine preservation. Okay. Now, is, is this man's inevitable physical death, at least apart from some special act of God, is this what is sometimes meant when man is said to be mortal? Yes. In Paul's resurrection magnum opus, 1 Corinthians 15, 
Paul uses three different Greek words variously translated perishable or mortal to refer to the pre-resurrection state of people's bodies. Verse 53 in particular uses thanatos, meaning susceptible to dying. Do you think that one or more of these three words refers to the kind of mortality that we just talked about, one's body eventually dying physically? Yes. In that passage, Paul says that though our present bodies are mortal and perishable, using those three Greek words, our resurrection bodies will be immortal, imperishable, incorruptible, the result being that death is swallowed up in victory. Do you think that one or more of these words refers to immortality in the sense of never physically dying in contrast with their pre-resurrection mortality? I would say what this refers to, and I think you would agree with this, I just want to be um, precise, that what this refers to is the bodies being such as to not die, even independently of whether God is specially preserving them in existence. So uh, I would actually I would actually not agree with that. Um, so let me ask you a slightly different question, then we'll come back to this. Okay. Is it possible for anybody to physically live, uh, physically live forever without God w- uh, preserving their physical life? Um, well, in what in one sense, uh, yes; in one sense, no. I mean, I guess we'll have to get into the details. Okay. So apart from the sort of half sense in which, or or, or the sense in which, God is 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 not needed to continuously live forever or whatever. Does one or more of these words immortal refer to that as opposed to their pre-resurrection mortality, the kind that we just talked about? Yes, I would say so. Okay. Uh, If these formerly mortal bodies were not rendered immortal in that sense, would they physically live forever following their resurrection? Uh, If God was specially preserving them and keeping them from dying, then yes. But if he wasn't, then eventually they would die and... and, uh... Okay, so I'm going to have to think about that one a little bit more. Um, Matthew 10.28 refers to man's ability to kill the body. James 2.26 says the body without the spirit is dead. And Matthew 23.27 refers to dead bones inside a tomb. Can we agree then that when a person dies, their formerly living body is now dead? That their body is dead? Yes. Okay. Isaiah 26.19 says your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Ezekiel 37.6, God uh, God says to dead bones, I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you, and you you shall live. Now, these are pictures of of resurrection, probably communicating something metaphorically, but nevertheless, they're pictures of physical resurrection. So I just want to make sure, do we agree that that in death, a living body becomes dead, and then in resurrection, a dead body comes back to life? Yes. So to summarize what we've discussed so far, I just want to make sure we're in agreement. Uh, It sounds to me like we agree that man's exclusion from the garden meant he wouldn't physically live forever apart from some sort of special preservation from God, that the Bible at least somewhere in 1 Corinthians 15 calls that state mortality or perishability and then says that that will be replaced with what the Bible sometimes calls immortality or imperishability, the result being everlasting physical life. And that furthermore, when a person dies, a a body that was once living is now dead, but then when it is resurrected, it becomes alive again. Is that fair? Yes. Okay, now I want to look at one more thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 42 to 44 say that perishable bodies will be raised imperishable, dishonorable bodies raised glorious, weak bodies raised powerful, natural bodies raised spiritual, Verse 50 says this is for the purpose of inheriting the kingdom of God. Verses 54 to uh, 56 say that this is when death is swallowed up in victory over the sting of death. Whose bodies are these all verses referring to? I take it these will be the bodies of the saved, the resurrected uh, saints. Okay. 
And in a, and in a sort of parallel passage, one that he wrote, uh, one that Paul wrote to the Corinthians later in 2 Corinthians 5, he says that the Spirit was given to us as a guarantee of that immortality uh, in, in resurrection that would swallow up the mortal. Um, is this, again, a reference only to immortality being given to the saved? Uh, yes. Yes, I believe so. Okay. So with all of that in mind, here's what I want to know. I, in light of the fact that believers have been given the Spirit as a guarantee that their mortal bodies will rise immortal, in light of the fact that their bodies being raised immortal is for the purpose of inheriting the kingdom of God and gives them victory over the sting of death, in light of the fact that bodies raised immortal are glorious, dishonor, uh, powerful, weak, I mean powerful <laughs> and, and glorious, in light of all that and with your agreement in mind that resurrection renders formerly dead bodies alive again, the question I have for you is where does the Bible say that uh, – well, I already know your answer to part of the question I was going to ask because of the caveat that you put on immortality. But where does it say that the physical bodies, the resurrected bodies of the wicked will live forever? Is there I anywhere? Think it, I think it entails that. Uh, as I'm sure you might be able to tell based on what I've said previously, I do not think the wicked will be immortal. Um, so I agree with you that immortality is something promised only to the saved and that only they will will be immortal. I understand. Uh, let me, if, but, if you don't mind, let me interrupt because I, I'm running out of time. Let me, let me just try to put it more simply to you because I think I know where you're going and I just want to make sure I know. So I understand you, you're saying they're not raised immortal, but they are raised in, and preserved in physical life for eternity. Yeah, Correct? their mortal bodies will be kept from dying by God. That, that's what I Okay. Think. Now, apart from, apart from inferring that from passages that you interpret to be references to eternal torment, is there anywhere where the Bible says they'll live forever in that way? Uh, no. Okay. Or One at least final not, question. Not very explicitly. I mean, we could you could debate certain ones, but. Okay. One last question before I want to move on to a slightly different topic. You said earlier that in hell God will withhold all blessing, all good, and all valuable things, and then you agreed that physical life is valuable in and of itself. Even if, the, even if the quality of life is not good. Since we've established that resurrected unbelievers once again have physical life and that that physical life will last forever in hell, which of those two original affirmations do you want to take back? That physical life is valuable in and of itself or that God will withhold all good and valuable things in hell? Yeah, I mean, when I talk about uh, God you know, withholding all good and valuable things, obviously uh, the, the implicit uh, restriction there is that he will withhold all good and valuable things, uh, such as are compatible with their continued existence. Obviously, um, if he were to withhold everything, that okay. would be, so, you know, de de I mean, okay. apart so, from whether you think existence is a thing and all that sort of stuff. But uh, Okay, so, so the one, at least one good thing, valuable thing, that isn't withheld from them is physical life. Sure. I mean, I'm not even sure what that would mean, just that you're withholding from someone existence because you you can't withhold anything from anything that doesn't exist so, i didn't I, you know just to be clear i haven't actually used the word existence anywhere here and in fact the uh the debate sort of title was not my my um choosing the question i asked was will physical life be withheld from the unsaved in hell and you said no correct yeah that's right so something that is inherently valuable will not be withheld from the unsaved correct that's right Okay, so then hell is not a place where all valuable things are withheld, only some things, or most no, things. No, as I say, the things that are withheld are the valuable things that are compatible with their continued existence. Okay, let's move on. I want to talk about the atonement in the couple of minutes I've got left. Um, I'm assuming we agree on penal substitution? Yes. 
and you agree that the punishment Jesus bore in our that, that means that he bore our punishment in our place. Yes, indeed. Okay, and you know whether coming from an Arminian or a, Cal- or a Calvinist perspective, that means that those to whom that substitute penalty was not credited will suffer that punishment themselves. Right. Okay, and if I understood you correctly, you said that that punishment was the finite duration of suffering that he paid, but because of his being the God-man, it qualifies as an eternity of suffering or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, however one would... Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously you're familiar, familiar with this sort of line because you mentioned it in your writings. Um, but basically, yes, I, I think you, you take the wrath of God that is poured out on, on wicked uh, folks and somehow Jesus is able to bear the equivalent of that within a finite span of time, yes. Okay. So the question I have for you is, once his finite duration of suffering fully exhausted the divine penalty due sinners, why did he go on to die? What, what, what punishment was left to bear on behalf of those in place he had just suffered the equivalent of an eternity of torment? Yeah, I would say that the kind of suffering that he endured uh, simply necessitated his physical death, that one is incapable of physically enduring the kind of suffering which he underwent without physically dying. So in but the same way that you, you would say... Have, I only have 30 seconds left, so if you don't mind me just right. asking one last question. You no do problem. believe that you do believe that the unsaved will experience that, that very kind of torment for eternity, right? Uh, yes, indeed. So, so could not God have exhausted his wrath in the finite duration of Jesus' suffering and then preserved his life in the same way that he's going to preserve the lives of the wicked forever in eternity? Yes. So then why did he die? So that he could be resurrected. Okay. So the death is... Okay, that's my time. I'm sorry. Go ahead. All right. Uh, you. Mike, you can, you can continue with, uh, with where he's going or you can just move to where, wherever you want. All right, well, I'm, I'll be asking him questions, so some of this will come up, I'm, I'm sure. Okay, let's see. So you've mentioned, uh, you've, you've mentioned the destruction as being the, the penalty that is laid out uh, in terms of what is owed to God on account of, of sin. Do you believe that and I take it you do, given our previous discussion. But do you believe that Jesus bore the the penalty uh, that we that we would otherwise have borne? That penalty be that penalty being the privation of life. Yes. So was was Jesus destroyed? He was killed. His life was taken away from him. Right. So I I imagine you take it that the words for destruction and the the word or the word often translated kill. In uh, the New Testament, that these are synonyms, is that correct? Not always, but they are in the Synoptic Gospels when they're used to describe what one person does to another in the act of voice. They are synonyms, yes. Right, so to say that Jesus was killed, on your view, would be the same as saying that he was he was destroyed. I would just, well, in the way, in the sense that I'm quoting that text, yes, but I prefer to just say he was killed. He was, his life was, he was deprived of life. Okay, so then it is, is, is it possible to be destroyed while continuing to exist thereafter? Well, 
conditionalists are mixed on the answer to that question. Some conditionalists are dualists. I'm sure you understand that, that the use of that word, meaning that they believe an immaterial soul lives on after the death of the body. Uh, others of us are not. We are what are called monists or physicalists and believe that man is a soul rather than has a soul. And in that sense, no, a per, those, those conditionalists believe that when a person dies, they do not continue to live in, uh, in any sense of the word until they're resurrected. Uh, did Jesus continue to exist after he was destroyed? I, I'm not, I would prefer to use the word live because I'm not talking about existence. So uh, can you what, is the, question? what is the distinction that you're drawing between life and existence? Well, in the same, the same distinction between a body living and a, and a body being dead. It no longer has life. I'm not sure. I guess I don't understand what's, what's difficult. So then I'm trying to understand if there is a distinction or if there isn't one between life and existence. Well, uh, I, I, let me put it another way. I could say that, uh, uh, that a person would cease to be consciously existent. I'd be comfortable with that. But the point that I'm getting at is that the only reason why people speak of ongoing existence is because they think that something is alive, whether it's the body or the soul. And I'm saying that... Uh, that uh, the, the, the risen and penitent will die and not live in any sense, whether soul or body. But you, you, so certainly, you, want... you certainly think that one could be unconscious and still exist, I imagine, right? Yeah, but one cannot be dead and continue to be conscious if somebody, if, if, if a conditionalist is a monist. If they are a dualist, they could say a person's body could be dead, but their soul could continue to live. But if their soul dies too, then you have no life left at all. And because the, in a, even in a dualist sense, the only reason that there's conscious existence continue, continuing to go on is because the soul continues to live. But we're the, saying there. Did the soul of Jesus die? A dualist conditionalist would say that his soul did continue to live. Uh, a monist would say that he, uh, his humanity, in his humanity, he entirely died. What, what do you say? I, I say I'm a, I'm a monist, and so I believe that Jesus truly died, and, his, and in his humanity was no longer alive in any sense of the word. So he, he I take it, you, given that you believe he was God, you think that he existed, just not as a human? Well, I think he existed as a dead human. I so mean, Je after all, the Bible... Jesus, Jesus was identical to a dead human, uh, which you take to have been a, a non-existent human or an existent human during that three-day span? I would say a dead human. Okay, but in terms of whether you would say a, an existent human or a non-existent human, I've, presumably I, I guess, one or the other. I mean, I know you don't like the language, but I would say one that, or the other, I would presume. I would say that for the three days in the tomb, particularly in light of the fact that the book of Acts says that uh, God did not abandon him and preserved him so that he would not decay, I would say that a dead human continued to exist in the tomb for three days um but had god not you know allowed him to, to avoid being uh, avoid decaying away then yeah eventually there would no longer be a dead human there was was jesus conscious after uh being killed i am of the opinion that he was not uh but like i said dualist conditionalists would say that he was okay uh so then because jesus continued to exist as a dead human after being killed or destroyed, it is possible, uh, metaphysically speaking, to exist after being destroyed. Is that correct? So long as God has acted to 
you know, indefinitely preserve, uh, you know, their body around, I suppose that would be possible. I mean, if, if, uh, if for some reason a thousand years, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, let's see. So you've mentioned the punishment, of course, being death and all this kind of thing. Um, is it the case that God could have simply allowed each particular human to undergo some sort of finite period of suffering and then upon their death resurrect them without having Jesus come at all? No. Why is that not possible? Because by virtue of being resurrected, their death, it would, they would no longer be, they would, they, their punishment would no longer be. Their punishment is the. Let me let me put it this way. Saint Augustine in the City of God said that um, uh, that the, as the award of death for any great crime, the laws of governments recognize that the punishment consists not in the moment of moment that it takes to die, but in the fact that the offender is eternally banished from the society of the living. And I agree with that. So I think, and in fact, I think it's absurd to say otherwise, because then capital punishment is nowhere near as bad a punishment as, uh, as a, a imprisonment. So I think that the that when I talk about the punishment of death, I'm not talking about the punishment of dying. I'm talking about the punishment of not having life. And if the and if the risen wicked were to be killed and then resurrected, they by definition would not be that would not be their punishment. So you you take it that the punishment owed to God on account of our sin is eternal destruction, not just destruction. I would say that the punishment owed to humanity is the privation of life. Now, if you want to talk about why God's, uh, why Jesus's life was restored, I'm happy to answer that question, if that's what you're getting at. Okay, but by saying it's the privation of life, you're not specifying whether this needs to be life that is never restored, or whether this is life that can be privated and then restored at some later point. And so well, this actually, is why I'm asking the well, that's actually, that's actually I, I don't agree with you. I actually think that if the punish if somebody's punishment is the privation of life, then by definition I think that the reversal of that is no longer a punishment. It, it so means you, it's not it's not a punishment. So then, in order for for it to be a punishment at all, it must be eternal deprivation of life. I think in order for somebody's punishment to, huh, this is a good question. Um, I think that yes, a punishment. Is let me put it this way: a punishment is undone if somebody rises from the grave. So, if you want to ask me why Jesus's punishment that he bore for us was undone, I can answer that. Uh, when you say undone, what do you mean? I don't want to ask, ask questions during your time. I mean that the punishment of a privation of life is undone; it's reversed. They come back to life. Is it? Is it no longer? Does the punishment not count uh, the previous punishment? If the punishment is the privation of life and the privation of life is discontinued, I don't see that as – I see that as the punishment being reversed, undone. So then if if I were to commit some sort of sin, the punishment for which is deprivation of life, and then so God kills me and then 10 minutes later resurrects me, you're saying that the punishment that would – that I incurred in virtue of the sin that I committed, I still have to pay that punishment. It hasn't been hasn't been borne by me. Is that what you're saying? So God would more have or to, less. 
Kill me More again. or less, I think so. Yeah. Okay. But for the sake of argument, if you want me to, I could say that in order for I could say that the punishment due to sinners is an eternity of privation of life. I could answer it that way too, if you'd like. I, I suspect that what you're getting to is why was Jesus raised, if, if if what I've been saying is true. And I think that I can answer that question from either of those two perspectives. Okay, I'm sorry. If you could uh, repeat that just one more time. Sorry. Sure. What I said was. For the sake of argument, I'd be happy to say that the punishment due to our sin is an eternity of privation of life, because I think that what you're getting at, and I could be wrong about this, but I think what you're leading to is why was Jesus raised if he served as the punishment in our place? And what I'm saying is I think I have answers to that from either of the two perspectives I've offered you. So if that's the question you're leading to, just feel free to ask it. All right, then uh, then what is the answer from either of those two perspectives? As to why sure. Jesus didn't undergo everlasting destruction. Sure. Well, you, you said that the finite duration of his, of his suffering qualified as an eternity of suffering by virtue of being both God and man, correct? Yeah, that there's a, there's a certain, I don't know if I want to call it amount, but whether amount or quality of suffering that Christ had to bear, and that whereas finite humans must bear that either quantity or quality of punishment over um, the indefinite span of continued existence, Jesus was able to bear it within the course of, of three hours, yes. Okay. So my answer to your question then is the same thing. If At least that's one answer I can provide, and I think that it's sufficient to negate the power of the argument. Uh, in other words, if a finite period of suffering uh, experienced by the God-man can qualify as the eternity of punishment, uh, the eternity of suffering awaiting the wicked by virtue of his being both God and man, then a finite duration of privation of life could likewise qualify as the eternity of privation of life awaiting the unsaved by virtue of his being both God and man. So you wouldn't say that it is, in, that it is necessarily the case that in order to bear the punishment that is owed to God on the basis of our sin, we must undergo everlasting destruction. Well, I already told you that that's, I, I could answer that uh, by saying, yes, in fact, an eternity of probation of life is what's required, but because God is both human and God, he can bear that eternity of probation of life in a finite, duration, in a finite period of time in the exact same reasoning uh, that you just described, the eternity of suffering that he bore on our behalf. But I think there's also uh, another answer, which is that the difference between Christ and between us is that everybody who bears their punishment for them on their own uh, when they're risen from the dead, the reason why that's got to last forever, the reason why the privation of life has got to last forever is because they're being punished for their sin, whereas Christ was sinless and didn't himself merit that eternal privation. So when he was raised, another possible answer to your objection, although I already negated the first one, um, another possible answer is to say that he suffered the privation of life that everybody else would have, but he his his resurrection was made possible by virtue of the fact that he was the perfect, sinless, holy, spotless Lamb of God. Whereas everybody else who was raised to life, they are sinners. They're, they they deserve uh, to continue to be dead, whereas he did not. Um, now, I'm not sure which of those two answers you prefer, but, but either one of them, I think, negates your objection. <laughs> to, um, to get back to the second uh, proposal first, is it the case that when Jesus dies on the cross he is dying the he is dying on our behalf for our sin 
That's correct. The spotless Lamb of God suffered the punishment on our behalf, yes. So he is paying the, or enduring the punishment that our sin dictates one uh, endure. Is that correct? In the second answer I provided you? Yes. Uh, he suffers the probation of life that we deserved in this in this in this answer to the question, um, and then he rises because he is sinless and is able to rise, perfect without a sinful. You know, uh, he 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 continues to not sin anymore. He he doesn't warrant any additional death. Something along those lines. Whereas um, the risen and, and also let me add this: he, Christ, I think we would all agree, did not simply bear the consequences of sin on our behalf. He also lived the perfect life on our behalf. Um, anybody who dies on their own, if they were to suffer a finite duration of uh, probation of life, it still wouldn't, they still would not have lived uh, the, the perfect righteousness that Christ needed to, or, or that Christ did. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I guess I just don't see the, um, the force of your argument. So you got about if, one minute, Mike. If Christ... Yeah, you, you, you got one minute, Mike. One minute, okay. If Christ died the, or if Christ endured the punishment that our sin dictates that he endured, then it seems if our sin dictates that we endure uh, everlasting destruction, then at least on this proposal it would follow that Jesus had to, in order to bear the, the punishment that we would have borne, he would have had to have undergone eternal destruction um, but but I think the reason in this in the second answer uh, just to reiterate I already give you an answer that negates the objection but in the second answer uh, the reason why a person um, cannot continue to or cannot be risen from the dead is because they're uh, they, they they're not sinless uh, they haven't lived a perfect life they haven't li- they, they, they could be they could live again perhaps I suppose but then they're still gonna deserve death because they're still sinners whereas Christ was not so I think that the answer from this perspective would be that Christ bore the privation of life on our behalf, and then because he was sinless, was able to was was able to have victory over death. Um, but that's not that's not my particular answer to the question anyway. I I, I kind of prefer the first one I think because of uh, its ability to easily negate the objection. So. Okay, that is that will do it for the uh, cross examination period. And just to let people know, we are not going to be taking calls uh, this uh, this particular show, just because we want to get the, let the debaters um, be able to to have as much time as they can to interact. I know two hours seems like a lot, but it's it's really really no time at all doing a debate like this. So, all right, now we finished the cross exam, so uh, we'll go ahead and. Uh, it's uh, about the second hour now, so I guess we'll just go ahead and move into um, the question period where um, the debaters will uh, take turns posing prepared questions uh, to each other. They have not seen each other's questions, um, and then we'll spend 10 minutes or so uh, interacting on the questions. So, uh, Chris, did you want to go first? Yeah, and I'll, I'll just state from the outset that I'm, much more nervous about this portion because I didn't <laughs> come up with many good questions. We'll, we'll see. We'll see if I have enough material. Uh, Mike, the, the first question I'd like to discuss is this: We've established that, in your view, 
the formerly dead bodies of the lost will rise from the dead and live forever, and that God could have chosen to preserve the life of Christ after he finished exhausting the wrath of God in his torment. In light of the fact that Jesus did die, and in light of the myriad ways in which the Bible appears to indicate that the lost will not live forever and will instead die, what more could the Bible possibly say to convince you that they will not, in fact, live forever? Well, if the Bible simply said that the uh, the lost would cease to exist, or that God would, uh, you know, that he would, that he doesn't love them, and that he isn't going to, if it didn't provide the premises that I think it provides that undergird the arguments that I gave in my opening, then I would embrace uh, your position. Well, okay, let, let's explore a couple of those things. I, I found your love for the wicked one interesting, because I actually... Uh, depending upon how, what you mean by the word love, I actually would not um, accept that premise. I mean, Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his, whole, his soul uh, hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Uh, I, I'm actually, I'm reformed, and so I, don't, I definitely sure. don't think that God loves the, the wicked in the same way that he loves his adopted children. Right. So I, I really don't think that argument carries any force. But, but you, you, you answered my question in an interesting way. I asked, what more would the Bible have to say to convince you that they will not live forever? And then you said it would have to say they cease to exist. Why? Why would it not be enough for the Bible to say for the Bible to say they'll die? Uh, because it's clear, to me at least, that death, as such, does not entail the cessation of existence. Okay, uh, but, if, but, it, if it did, just as a conceptual matter, entail cessation of existence, then Jesus, having died, would have ceased to exist, which he did not. Yeah, but, but Mike, I mean, I, I'm. Uh, it's tough because I, I, I almost feel it feels really strange to me. I keep talking about death, and you keep talking about cessation of existence. We have already agreed that the contrast between a dead body and a living one is not cessation of existence; it's the cessation of life. You said that it, that in death a living body becomes dead, and then when in resurrection a dead body becomes living again. So that has nothing to do with cessation of existence. It has to do with a cessation of life. And so the question I'm asking is. What would the Bible have to say to convince you that they will not live forever um, that it hasn't already said, given that it so many times says they'll die? Well, I suppose, I mean, I, I wonder if what you're asking is why I don't entertain the hypothesis that the dead could be existing but could just be dead in the same way that you think Jesus was existing but was but was dead. Well, um, I suppose given that they exist, Coupling that with the fact that the Bible describes the state of outer darkness, at least for a while, as one of uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth, when those are combined, it seems to me that the best way to understand that is the wicked will continue to exist in a state which leads to them weeping and gnashing teeth and that sort of thing. Okay, well, I, you know, the, the weeping and gnashing thing I, I don't find compelling since Matthew 13 is a place where weeping and gnashing is mentioned, and it's a place where it specifically says the wicked will be consumed like chaff. But that aside, I, I, so it, okay, let me let me ask you this. Well, uh, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I, you know, because this isn't sort of the same kind of cross-examination as before. I don't want to veer off topic, but sure. Um, but but it sounds to me like what you're saying, and tell me if this is wrong. It sounds to me like what you're saying is that the reason what, what the Bible would have to do is not say, uh, using language, uh, not say things that it says which you interpret to be living forever in torment. Is that fair? Uh, yes. So 
would you would you and I know this is a bold question and if you you know if you don't want to answer it or whatever that's okay would you if these passages had better interpretations um, uh, that are compatible with my view then would there be any reason whatsoever for for believing in light of how repeatedly it talks about their death and destruction would there be any reason left for believing that they'll live forever if and if my if my arguments in favor of the traditional view were shown to be unsuccessful uh, then no, I wouldn't continue to hold the traditional view if, the, if that's what you're asking. Okay, so so let me make, let me make sure I, cl- I can clarify this. So if so, number one, in light of the fact that everything the Bible says about the death and destruction of the wicked, if the texts that you think uh, that you interpret to be living forever in torment had a better explanation than that, which I happen to think they are, um, the only remaining thing for you would be these theological or philosophical arguments that you have. Is that right? Right, but I take it that they are they're undergirded by by the the text of scripture as a whole. I, mean, I think the the premises can be substantiated on the theological grounds. Okay, uh, Devin, how much more time do I have? Um, yeah, looking at about five minutes or so. Okay. Now I know that this was supposed to be I would ask a question and he would ask a question, but. His answer to my question sort of necessitates a different direction. Um, can I use the remaining of five minutes of this time to address his theological arguments, since I think, if I understood him correctly, this would be the last remaining stronghold if we got rid of the text that he thinks, or if we uh, explain? Just to uh, just to point out, in my three questions, I will I will be giving you an opportunity to respond to oh, those. Oh, great! That's wonderful. So then, will your questions involve the proof text? Um, which proof text? Specifically. Any, any any of the ones most notable as being traditionally used to support your view of hell? Uh, I will mention, uh, as I did in, in my opening, the the weeping and gnashing of teeth, but I, okay. I think we agree that that, that at least uh, entails that there is some conscious torment, at least for a while, and then if okay. one can establish, in addition to that, that the uh, wicked continue to exist forever then it seems to make the most sense that they would continue to exist forever in that state. Uh, okay, but that, right. so, that's so, the only extent to which I'm going to rely on on those. So then, so then let me use the remaining time of this question to uh, talk about a couple of other really notable ones, okay? Um, okay. Because cause I want to reiterate something. It sounds to me like what you're saying is there are two things that are preventing you from believing that the Bible teaches that the wicked will die, and that's and that's number one. It seems to say certain things that you interpret to mean eternal torment in, in life, and number two, you have a couple of theological arguments that you think uh, have no other possible answer. And so what I'd like to do, since you're going to ask me about those theological arguments, is I'd like to address that other issue, the issue of the texts. Is that okay? Uh, it is okay, but I, I think you'll see that we actually agree on the – with respect to the passages that I mentioned. I think well, – uh, well, well, hold on, hold on. We we'll, agree we'll more than we disagree, week- but we'll, we'll see. You can go ahead. Yeah, so I, I probably only have about like three minutes left. Uh, the you know here's an example. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Mark 9:48, uh, where Jesus says that the worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched. Um, you heard me give an argument for why that's better understood in my paradigm. Um, what? Why is your interpretation of that text better? Right, I wasn't it, relying on those passages uh, to undergird my view. The only ones, as I mentioned, would be uh, Matthew 8:12, and I think uh, is it. Matthew 13, where it talks about weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. Uh, so, so does that, am I understanding you correctly, 
to say that of the several handful, I suppose, of other texts which are traditionally pointed to, these are the only two that you're um, that you see as being difficult for my position. I think when you combine what even you and think that they teach, which is at least a, a finite duration of uh, conscious torment to be followed by death, which entails non-existence. When you can conjoin that with the other arguments which result in the conclusion that the wicked continue to exist forever, I think the um, conclusion to draw is that they exist forever in a state of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. Um, well, as I mentioned in my introduction, you know, my, my emphasis is exegesis, so I do want to go to the text. And uh, one of the texts that is typically cited is Mark 948. Um, when Jesus says that their, fi their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, as you know, I'm sure, he's quoting Isaiah 66, 24, where it's corpses being eaten up. And the biblical uses of those idioms of scavengers that can't be stopped and of fire that can't be quenched are consistently used to refer to fire which kills and burns up. So I guess my first question uh, in this last remaining minute or so that I've got is, how, what, is the what is your answer to that text? That, that, uh, how, what is your response to my understanding of that text? Well, as I say, when you say that the uh, wicked die and that they are destroyed, uh, and that that is the, the punishment that they must undergo, and that, uh, that's the payment for sin, I am uh, happy to say that that's, well, not happy. I'm happy to concede that that's <laughs> what the uh, the text is uh, teaching. So I do believe that the wicked are destroyed and that they will die. I just don't think that entails non-existence um well but well hold on we've already said i think we've already established that your view is that they the risen wicked their punishment will not be physical death and yet here we have corpses being completely consumed by fire and maggots so i don't think i, I get are you taking this text but there are the they're death? already dead if they're corpses i mean there's uh apocalyptic imagery involved here as you know oh okay so, uh, so then you're saying that, that these passages are of, of corpses being consumed is just imagery. Is that right? Well, I, I think what this is referring to is that the punishment for the wicked is death, destruction, perishing, those, that whole related group of, of terms. Just not physical death. And for me, what this comes down to is how does one construe that death and destruction? Does the death and destruction entail the unconscious, uh, or at least the, uh, yeah, the unconscious existence or the non-existence of the people that are destroyed. And I would say no, because, I mean, one thing you could look at is, for example, John 3.16, where you've got the same word used, and Jesus says that the believing ones will not perish, will not be destroyed, will not be killed. He says this will never happen to them. Mm -hmm. But obviously they they are physically killed and physically destroyed and not not after the resurrection though. Sure. But it says okay. in John three sixteen that this will never happen. Not that it'll happen and then they'll be resurrected and then it'll never well, happen. Well it says they surely will not perish. But anyway I suspect that my time's up, so we should probably switch to yours. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, Mike, you can take a minute or so if you want to finish up or whatever or go ahead and jump on your your question to Chris. Okay, well, I'll, I'll just move on to the to the questions then. Um, let's see. Do you... Okay, so you said earlier you do not think that God 
loves the wicked in the sense of at least willing good for them? I would say that he uh, continues to will, uh, in a certain sense, for their ongoing life and salvation, um, not in the, the creative sense. You know, being a Calvinist, I, I like to confuse those things a little bit. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, no, but, but I don't think that that love lasts forever. I mean, you know, Hebrews 6, 7, and 8, for example, says that the land that has dropped the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So, you know, and we know of other places where the rain falls on both the good and, 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 and the wicked. So the point I'm getting at is I think that they God... They have common grace then. They get common grace. Right, but I don't. I see no reason to believe that that's everlasting. Okay, so and God also, does, and also, sorry, go ahead. So God doesn't continue. He doesn't love them in the sense of continuing to will at least some good things for them. He at some point stops having even that kind of love for them. By virtue of what He has declared to be the just punishment for sin, which is inflicted at the resurrection. Yes. In other words, I think that justice. I don't think that God is only loving. I think he's also just. And because I believe that the wages of sin is death, I'm inclined to believe that he eventually reaches the point where he says, no, this penalty is owed to you. And I actually think that uh, the infliction of capital punishment is the height of, um, rec of, of recognizing God's, uh, man's um, inherent value uh, for reasons that you're aware of as, since you read that article. So I think that at some point he gives people what they deserve, which is death, and from then on doesn't will them anything for them because they're dead. Okay, so you you take it that uh, it is not possible for God to justly love people that deserve that uh, in in your view ought to be ought to be killed and thus annihilated. If their punishment hasn't been born for them, then that's right. Okay, so at some point, God has to cease loving them in any sense. He, I think that... In order to kill them, he has to stop willing good things for them. Uh, I suppose in a certain sense, yes. Um, to be fair, I don't think that's all that controversial. I, don't th I think most traditionalists take a slightly different approach from you and would not say that God continues to will for the good of the wicked. But, yeah, I think I would say that God reaches a, his patience um, with the wicked, comes to an end, and the rain that, the rain has fallen, his love, his, in a, his common grace has fallen upon the wicked for a time, but in the end it hasn't borne fruit, and because their punishment hasn't been borne by the Savior, uh, they will be killed. Okay. Um, do you think that all human beings are equally valuable in the sight of God? I, I would put, I would say all human beings are equally in, uh, uh, not valuable to God. Yes, well, I think that we're rotten. I think that humans are rotten scumbags. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. But uh, in whatever sense in which they are rotten scumbags, this doesn't uh, <laughs> this doesn't preclude their having at least the value such that uh, we would want to say, you know, on the basis of which we'd want to condemn things like euthanasia and ab abortion and that sort of thing? Uh, I, I would say, uh, there's, okay, let me, let me, I think that life is inherently valuable, yes, but I don't think that that means that God owes us anything. So when we talk about value, I'm not talking about being owed anything, and so I don't think that therefore God is... 
Okay. So I, I just don't think that the fact that all human beings have something that is intrinsically valuable, namely physical life, up until the point that they're killed forever, uh, I, I, that doesn't mean that God is obligated to continue to, uh, to preserve their life. After all, I mean, we both agree that God frequently throughout history, uh, I guess I shouldn't say we do agree, I, I suspect we agree that God has frequently throughout history uh, killed, ended the inherently intrinsically valuable pro uh, physical life of numerous people. Uh, sure. So, okay. okay. So, in what, in whatever sense of, of value, uh, that is such that they have the value that allows them not to be killed by euthanasia, abortion, that that sort of thing. Uh, well, I, I, well, just to be clear. The reason I don't think that the reason I think it's wrong, uh, euthanasia and abortion and things are wrong, is because we are not we're, we don't have any right over that life. It's not our position it's not our uh we're not the owners of that life god is so i do think god has the right to kill people um as just punishment for their sin i happen to think also that we have the right to kill capital people who deserve capital punishment um but you know euthanasia and stuff like that taking intrinsic life without there being unique exceptions like deserving death uh i think the, the reason why we don't allow that or shouldn't allow it is because it's not our prerogative okay do you think that there is anything uh equal about human beings and that they all have in common that is of moral significance? Uh, insofar as they are created in the image of God, that's about it. Okay, so it seems that if you want to say that God loves the elect and, and at some point ceases to love the wicked, at least in the sense of willing any goodness for them, because if they don't exist, he can't will any goodness for them, uh, then it seems as though, at least to me, that God is treating equal things unequally. Uh, I suspect you would disagree with that, but I, I want to know the, why. The basis of my disagreement? Right. Yeah, well, it's simple. The elect have had the, the, the elect are clothed in Christ. The reason that God continues to love the elect for eternity in such a way as to preserve their physical life is because he loves his son, and we are united to him. Right, but if we, if we think about logically prior to the divine decree, so you've got... I don't think there is a, I don't think there is a prior to the divine decree. I'm not sure no, if I I mean, understand. logically prior to the divine decree. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, are you saying... Are you are you asking me what is the basis for God's choice of the of, of extending saving love to the elect, but not the non-elect? So, because what what he seems like he's committing himself to in choosing to elect one group of humans in this sort of unconditional fashion, whereas uh, to not elect these these others, so that eventually he ends up uh, not loving them in any sense, or at least not willing any good for them. Uh, that what he's doing is he's treating equal things unequally. Uh, would you? How would no, you I would disagree with that. So let me let me answer from both an Arminian perspective and a Calvinist one because I really don't want this to become a debate about soteriology. Sure. Um, no, it, it has implications for whether God continues to love the wicked. That, that's sure. the reason I bring it up. Sure. I think that an Arminian would say. Uh, I hope they would say that uh, the reason, the basis by, uh, upon which God treats two people. Uh, unequally, in the sense that he extends saving uh, life, uh, saving love that preserves their life forever after the judgment. Uh, the basis of that 
is their freedom, their free will choice by which they place their faith in Jesus Christ. Henceforth, they are forever uh, loved by God in a way that the non-elect are not. I don't think that's all that controversial. Now, as for Calvinism, uh, as far as Reformed theology, uh, the Bible doesn't answer for us what the basis is for God's choosing one people over the other, except that it's by the basis of his own, his own good choosing, his own good will. And I'm ex- I can accept that. Got about a minute to go, Mike. All right. So you, it seems to me that what you're saying is uh, God has some reason for why he would choose to to love one group of people in a way that entails his continued love for them forever, while withholding that love from another group of people, that he has some reason for that, such that he's not treating unequal things or equal things unequally, but that that simply isn't disclosed. Well, it's it's That's God's the reason the reason presides solely within God. Okay. There's nothing about there's nothing about me versus my unsaved neighbor. That warranted, or that, or that, you know, merited, or that caused, or led to God loving me differently. It's all in Him. Pro- prior right. to, okay, sorry. Yeah, it's Chris's yep. turn to uh, to ask a question. Okay, and yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll ask a question about um, some m- more difficult passages. Because I know I don't want to go off on too variety, too much of a variety of different topics. Although Devin, feel free to rein me in if you think I'm I'm going beyond the bounds of our uh, agreement. So I want to ask you about other passages that are traditionally cited. Uh, well, actually, you know what? Let, let me go back a step. I want to ask you first about Matthew 10:28. Um, it sounded. Do you agree? So you and I understand the first clause of that uh, of that verse. Do not fear those who kill the body. To both refer to human beings kill, rendering a formerly living body dead, correct? Yes. But they are unable to render a formerly living soul dead, correct? I, I don't know if that's what you believe. That, that's, that's what I believe. But uh, That's what I was asking you is what you believe. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then he says, instead fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, using a word of polyamy. Can you show me anywhere in the Synoptic Gospels where a polyamy is used in the active voice to describe what one personal agent does to another in which it doesn't mean kill? Well, no, of course not, because I, I do okay. think that uh, so, so in hell, punishment in, for sin is, is death. But this is death in Gehenna, and it's not death of any sort. The body it specifically says God will destroy, will kill the body in hell, correct? Uh, well, I'd have to look at the Greek here, but uh, it doesn't seem to me that it says he will do that. It just says he could do that. Okay, so are you saying that we should fear the one who could do something that he's not going to? Sure, we should fear him in terms of his power. It seems like the whole point of the passage is that human beings are of limited capability in terms of what they can do to us, and so we shouldn't uh, fear them precisely because of their limitations with respect to power, but the one who holds our very existence in his hand He's the one that we ought to be fearing. Okay. So we could – the, the point of the message could equally be given to say, rather fear him who can turn you into a chicken. <laughs> well, okay, so I'll, uh, I'll bite for the sake of the discussion. If I was going to say that um, God was going to 
kill both the soul and the body. I would take that as just a way of referring to the entirety of the the individual undergoing destruction. But a kind of destruction which does not entail the death of the body. Uh, right. Okay. All right. So I think that um, I'll just state that I think most traditionalists recognize that can there means will. I mean, he's he's not warning something that's not going to happen. Uh, in fact, the threat of physical death was a very real threat when he mentioned that first clause, uh, given the persecution of um, his followers. And so I, I think that it's very plain. You know, Jesus is saying, don't fear those who can who cannot do A, but fear God who can. Um, that seems to me to be pretty straightforward, but I'll leave that for our audience to decide. Uh, let's talk about some other passages. One of the passages that is most... Um, most, you know, uh, pointed to in favor of your view, and I understand that this is not part of your case, but because I feel that it's a more powerful uh, text for mine than for yours, I want to discuss uh, discuss it. Um, in Revelation 14, verses 9 to 11, it says, um, the one who worships the beast will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever re receives the mark of its names. Now, most traditionalists take this to mean, well, look, the smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever, so they must be tormented forever and ever. Is that your view? I'm uncertain about that, because I uh, have eschatological views that I take to be similar to yours. So. Oh, okay. I, I won't mention that by name, since I suspect you don't want to either. Uh, well, but, but I'm, nevertheless, I'm still working through it. it it's not something I'm enough. firmly committed to. Fair enough, but 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 in any case, um, so so you, well for the sake of our audience, let me let me still continue down this text before I go to another one. Um, in let me let me ask you a related question on this idea of smoke going up forever. The the great harlot of um, chapter eighteen. I don't want to ask you the identity of that harlot, um, given what you just answered a moment ago. But is this a real woman? Uh, well, I have to say, when it comes to the book of Revelation, it's, it's not something that I've worked through in any kind of depth to be uh, answering these sorts of questions. It's uh, something that remains okay, me, to be done for me. When, when the angel tells John that the uh, woman is the great city, do you take that to mean, even though you haven't worked through it all, that the harlot is a symbol in this vision representing a city? Yes. Okay. And... In the three or two or three places, there are two or three places there in Revelation 18 where this woman is described as having been tormented. And then in Revelation 19, it says her smoke rises up forever. Uh, that's in verse 3. So we have a symbol. In, in, we have in, we, in, the imagery, in the imagery, let me put it this way. In the imagery is a woman being tormented and it's smoke rising from her torment forever. Does that appear to be the case to you based on what I just read you? Uh, in terms of the imagery, but what the imagery is actually depicting. Um, exactly. I agree. Well, no, I think what you mean, I don't think you need to use the word depict because depict is what the imagery shows. I think what you mean well, is what, I, does what, the, what, the, what, the, what the imagery is actually referring to. What that. it symbolizes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when the angel interprets this imagery saying that Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more, would you take that to be the interpretation of the imagery? I'm sorry, say that again. In, in Revelation 18, verse 21, after John has been shown this vision in which the, the harlot is tormented, the angel, like he does throughout this book, interprets that imagery saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found anymore. So the question I have for you is, do you, 
would, does this seem to indicate to you that the interpretation of the smoke rising forever from the harlot's torment is symbolism meaning that the great city, whatever city that is, because I suspect you and I have similar views there, whatever city that is, is going to be destroyed? Yeah, I mean, so if you're wondering, I, I wouldn't hang any case for the traditional view on these passages. Of That's okay, but many of our listeners will be. So let's sure. talk then about, uh, so, so the point that I'm getting at is here in John's own vision, Smoke rising from forever from torment is interpreted to refer to the destruction of a city, not the ongoing torment of any individual human being. But let me ask about, uh, and, and by the way, for the sake of our listeners, uh, in Revelation 14, where and, and the passage that we just read, smoke rising forever is an allusion to Isaiah 34.10, where smoke rises forever from the remains of Edom. But nevertheless, let me also ask about Revelation 20, because that's also a very famous uh, passage that most traditionalists do, in fact, hang their hat on. Um, let me ask you this. What does death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire symbolize? In I your think it, that means that uh, death, death will be no more. That uh, That's an excellent, excellent answer. Now, do you, think, uh, do you think that there's a different fate symbolized by other things thrown into that fire? Sure. Like... Okay, so then we really can't treat the imagery consistently. No, I mean I think in, in Revelation you have all sorts of things that are that are used uh, in all sorts of different ways. Even in uh, okay, that, that's all right. Yeah. Well, hold on. That's all right. so so uh, we know that the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are in the vision, tormented forever. And I suspect, could, without giving too much away, would you agree that the beast, this seven-headed, ten-horned beast with features of a lion, a leopard, and a bear from chapter thirteen or wherever it is? It's not actual. Is is not in in the vision. It's not a person. It's a it's a beast, right? Um, most likely, yeah. Well, I'm not talking about its symbolism. I'm talking. I mean, I'm not talking about what it represents. I'm talking about what has happening in the vision. This is a beast, not an individual. Oh yeah, in the, yeah. In the sure, sure. Okay. Um, and uh, and and presumably, let me ask you a, kind of a speculative question. Do you think it would be true that most Christians don't think there's actually going to be a seven-headed, ten-horned beast that looks like a lion, a leopard, and a bear thrown into the lake of fire? All right, I have one minute. Okay, so let me let me just finish up. So you've already agreed that death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire symbolizes their end. Human beings are also thrown into the lake of fire, but their ongoing torment is not mentioned in that passage. And so I don't see any reason why we can arbitrarily choose to believe that, and I'm not saying this is your position, but I don't see any reason to arbitrarily choose to believe that the humans in the vision will be tormented forever as well, particularly in light of uh, the fact that John and God himself interpret this highly symbolic imagery as symbolism representing the second death. And throughout Scripture, the interpretation of imagery is always plain and straightforward, and so we conditionalists who think that the risen wicked are going to die a second time, I think this imagery is far, far better support for our view. But I think my time is up, so let's return to your second question. Okay. Um, let's see here. So you you do believe that uh, human existence is intrinsically valuable? I think physical life is intrinsically valuable. Is that is that the same as human existence, or is it is there a distinction? I think that a dead person exists as a, as a dead person. What distinguishes them from a living person is has nothing to do with existence. It has to do with life. Uh, and if you want to say consciousness as well, we could throw that in there. But when I when when I see a dead person on the ground, I don't say, oh, you know, my my grandpa uh, my grandpa has just ceased to exist. I don't use that language, so it's kind of like it's almost is, like you're speaking is, another do you, language. Do you believe that that's the case? 
whether you believe or not you use the language, do you believe that that's the case? I think I think he's dead. Well, I don't well, understand. I, I understand that, but do you think that he has ceased to exist? When I look at my, if I were to look at my dead gr- grandpa sitting in a coffin, I still see my grandpa there. He's just dead. So I guess I don't. So you, no. your grandpa has not ceased to exist. Um, he ceased. He ceased to live and will never live again. His body, you know, I, I, I'll tell you what, I can answer it this way. Bodies will eventually cease to exist. I mean, that's what happens when bodies burn up and rot. But just simply by virtue of the fact that a human has died, I don't see that as indica- an indication that a, that a person no longer exists. Okay, so it's possible for your, uh, well, well, for a particular dead person to continue to exist, even though they have none of the properties that they had while living. Yeah, his life has ceased. His his consciousness has ceased. He ceased to, to live. And, you know, provided that his dead body is not preserved, he's going to eventually cease to exist because there will be no more of him left. Uh, and if that cessation of existence of the body, you know, is rapid because of uh, being burned up like a furnace of fire, uh, which, by the way, our listeners will probably recognize, or if their body decays slowly over time by means of, say, maggots, which is also biblical language, either way, Yes, they eventually cease to exist, but that's but it's because their body is gone. There's nothing left of them. Um, when a person has died immediately and their body is still there, I don't think in terms of existence. Maybe that's a fault of mine. I apologize. Um, but I think in terms of death, there's a dead person there. They're dead. Okay. Um, so it, it, however you want to construe whether existence or, or human life or, or whatever – is this um, that you would say this is intrinsically valuable, correct? Yeah, life is intrinsically valuable, yes. So it's valuable regardless of its state or con- condition. Yeah, physical life. I, I, I am. I would not support euthanasia. I, you know, I mean, we could go off on a side note. You know, I, I, I I'm not saying okay, everybody no, has that, to. Be pres- that's fine. That's fine. Okay. Um, so then, the wicked unrepentant sinner, mm-hmm. uh, does God value his life or her life? I think that God values life and that we should, um, but I don't think that it means that there, are never, uh, that there are never circumstances which he deems as being worth uh, life coming to an end. So, I mean, it, it sounds to me like what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there could not be any conditions under which God would see something intrinsically valuable as nevertheless being something that needs to be gotten rid of. And if that's what you're saying, well, I just disagree, and then I'd like to see the biblical evidence for it. Well, it seems like what you're saying is that even though God takes the life of the wicked to be valuable, he has to stop valuing it. Even though he's Well, right, because, because I think that he's also a God of justice. And if, and if, his, uh, if, if, if God's justice demands... That sin, that the wages of sin is death, and that his son would have to bear that punishment by dying, and that the wicked will eventually die, perish, and be destroyed on account of their sin. I just take that. I take what the Bible says, and I say, yeah, he views justice in this particular case as being uh, circumstances which require the end of the life that he values. So, so just to just to be clear, sure. uh, you you think that it is the case that God can value the life of an individual? Or I, I'll rephrase. He 
he can think that that individual is valuable, even though he no longer values them. No, because his love, his value, his love for their life, okay, um, ends at the moment that the life ends. And the reason why he ended the life is because there were circumstances which required it uh, according to his eternal attributes, namely justice and so forth. And so, for example, I mean, and let's, let's be honest here. Um, we both agree that physical life is intrinsically valuable, and yet, you know, hundreds of people died when God destroyed them uh, by, uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah by fire. So, the, so clearly, clearly, God can, um, can bring, the, bring physical life to an end, and yet that doesn't seem to contradict any of his uh, any of his other attributes or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you, if you would agree with this, but I take it that uh, our earthly lives are such that necessarily they aren't uh, infinite, in, or at least potentially infinite in their duration. So it's a matter of metaphysical necessity that eventually we would we would die, uh, given our current. Uh, Unless but, God supernaturally preserves us. Right. But given our current state, I think it follows as a matter of metaphysical necessity, and I think you would agree with this, that he isn't going to uh, preserve us in this current state in which we reside. So he has the option, I think, of... Um, so you're saying that he ends lives because it was inevitable anyway? Well, I'm saying if it's inevitable, he doesn't have to do anything to end it. It's, it's inevitable. So, which is what you're saying is the grounds or the justification for ending lives sooner than that. Yeah, I mean, but, so he, but, 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 but hold on a second. Given well, the nature sorry, of our bodies, really that just happens in given circumstances. So if we find ourselves in those circumstances, that's what happens. Well, but, I mean, um, but, you, but you think so, that God is going to supernaturally preserve the lives of the wicked forever in hell, so it's not a metaphysical necessity. No, no, no. I'm saying given the current state that is apart from this sort of judgment and all of that. I see. Okay. That, uh, yeah. Um, but just because it seems that what you have to say is that God, even though he takes life to, to be valuable, and uh -huh. though he takes the life of any individual human to be valuable, uh -huh. he has to stop valuing them. And it just it seems to me to be a contradiction to say... I don't think that God has to do anything. I think that no, God no, I mean, just... In terms of metaphysical necessity, certainly not in terms of moral obligation. No, I don't. I don't even think it's a metaphysical necessity that God destroy people. It's it, it, unless by metaphysical you're referring to one of the attributes of God, namely His justice. Sure. Yeah, I think that God has so determined that the demands of justice is that the wages of sin is death, and eventually He inflicts that justice, and that justice overrules whatever value He may have for human life. Yeah. Well, unless you think that human life can continue apart from uh, physical death, which I guess is the no, I mean let's I mean let's be honest. We're not talking about uh the ongoing life of different disembodied souls. We're talking about the eternal life of human beings of, of bodies. So so I I, do, I won't allow that to be, you know, sort of that red herring to be thrown out there. What I'm saying is God has determined in his justice that the physical death and that physical death is the wages of sin, and if that's what justice demands because he's just and loving and not just one or the other and because he's simple uh, he can't. One can one can bring uh, in any particular circumstance can necessitate that the other one no longer be expressed. I don't I don't see the problem with that. Uh, well, what's what seems to be the problem with that is that you've got God 
valuing the existence of a particular individual while at the same time not valuing it. And no, I don't agree. God, what I'm saying is that so long, is that God values life. He any person's any person's physical life is valuable, but that God eventually reaches a point where he inflicts justice, which extends from his own nature. That justice is that the wages yep. of sin is So death. immediately prior to the point at which he exacts this justice and annihilates the individual, he doesn't take that individual to be valuable anymore. Is that correct? I never said that. Uh, oh, well, I'm, I'm when, when, uh, Yeah, when, 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 up until the moment that, is, that, the, that a person has breathed their last, he, he values that life because life is intrinsically valuable. But that doesn't mean that a, a millisecond before he ends the life, he stopped valuing it. Because what I'm saying is not that God's val- that God stops seeing something valuable and then destroys them. I'm saying that God ceases to see an individual's life valuable because they're not living anymore. And the reason they're not living anymore is because the wages of sin is death. Well, I take it that in order to continue to value something, you've got to keep that thing around in order to value it. So in order for something to be destroyed, somebody has to take whatever is destroyed as not being valuable, as a precondition of ever being able to destroy it. So I don't agree. To, you think I mean, that... If, if, okay, let's imagine a timeline, and, it, and it's, kind of, it's kind of sad that we're probably losing 90% of our audience, but let's, let's envision a timeline, you know, and you've got a line, and then you've got a, a horizontal line, and then you've got a vertical line, and the vertical line in the middle represents the moment that they've died, their life has ended, okay? Up until that moment, God continues to value that life. And then he ends it because of justice, and there's no more life to value. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no point before that vertical line in the timeline at which God stops valuing life see, and therefore destroys it. See, if, if this really is a matter of justice, that this life be removed, then that life isn't valuable. It's not worth, uh, it's not worth preserving. It's not worth... Let me step in here real quick. Let me step in here real quick. I'll give you guys the option because I know you both wanted five minutes uh, for closing. So we could give you guys uh, each five minutes to ask another question and then let you guys close. Or if you want, you guys can just keep talking on the same topic for another nine minutes and then we'll give you both five-minute close. What do you, What do you guys prefer? I, I I will admit that I would like five more minutes to do some exegesis together, and then maybe we can give um, Mike five minutes to do theology together, and then we can do our five minute closings. How does that sound to you, Mike? Uh, that sounds fine. Okay. All right. So, Devin, Go ahead, Chris. Okay. All right. So let me do five more minutes of exegesis. Uh, so we've talked about Revelation twenty and fourteen. We've talked about Matthew ten twenty eight. Let's talk about Second uh, Thessalonians. One nine, and I apologize for typing. I can't mute my microphone and talk at the same time, but I've got to type in order to pull up verses. Uh, you know, it says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Some translations say away from, but that's not what it says. It just says from. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And it's traditional, as G.K. Beale has pointed out, the the verse and the previous verses um, that talk about uh, God inflicting vengeance uh, comes from Isaiah sixty six twenty four. So. Uh, which, as we've seen, is a place is a picture in which the wicked have been slain, even though life is valuable. The wicked have been slain, and uh, they don't live anymore, and their bodies are being consumed by fire and by maggots. 
so isn't it isn't it plausible, uh, if not better, that Second Thessalonians one nine, the eternal destruction there, refers to uh, the death a death that lasts forever because they've been killed and they'll never rise to life again? Apart from the theological things we've been discussing, where does it stipulate that they will never rise to life again? By using the word Ionios. I'm sorry, could you repeat your... Uh... You asked me, yeah, you asked me where does it stipulate there that they'll never rise again, and I said by virtue of the fact that he uses the Greek word Ionios, everlasting. So this... it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be everlasting destruction if they rise again. Rosemary. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have the passage in front of me, so could you... Uh... Second Thessalonians 1.9 says sure. that the wicked will suffer the punishment oh, I see. of okay. everlasting destruction. Right, okay. And in the verses that lead up to it, as G.K. Beale who uh, has noted, he's, he's quoting, or he's at least alluding Isaiah. to Isaiah 624, where the slain, the, the wicked are slain. So it sounds to me like the kind of destruction he's referring to is the destruction of being, of, of being slain, and he says it's going to last forever. I don't understand, is, is that what the, in terms of exegesis, and then you'll have five minutes to do theology, in terms of exegesis, is there any problem with that interpretation of this? Uh, no, I, I agree that the wicked undergo everlasting destruction. The disagreement is ever... What that entails. I know what I'm saying. I know what I'm saying is, if he's referring to Isaiah 66:24, in which it's dead bodies that are eaten up and by fire and by maggots, couldn't eternal destruction refer to the everlasting destruction that results from being slain? No, I mean I, I think that dead bodies is just a way to underscore or depict the everlasting destruction. I, I think it's synonymous in the passage. I understand that's what you think. I'm asking you for, in terms of exegesis, what's the problem with the solution that I've, or what's the problem with the explanation I've offered? Is there anything? Okay, let me just put it simply. Is there any exegetical reason why what I've offered is does not uh, does not account for this language in here in Second Thessalonians? Well, does it not account for it, or does it necessitate it? I mean, it's your so you've got to argue that that's what it in, that's what it entails in virtue of the way the passage is constructed, and uh, given this, what I take to be the strength of the theological arguments, and given that I, I don't see how you've shown that it entails that. Uh, that's why I continue to hold to the traditionalist view. Okay, so there's no exegetical reason; it's theological. Let's talk about. There's no oh, geez, let's talk about. Not as though they can be separated. And, and that okay, sort of I, I I understand, but 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 I think you see my point. So now Matthew 13, um, this is this is one of the verses you were going to bring up: weeping and gnashing. Um, the weeping and gnashing is specifically in the context of human beings being thrown into a fire a fiery furnace, and being burned up just like chaff. In fact, he gives a parable in which chaff are thrown into a fire and destroyed. And then he says, just as in the parable, the chaff or the tares or, or whatever it is, the weeds are thrown into the fire, just as that happens uh, in the parable, so too will the angels gather out of his kingdom uh, all the sinners and throw them into a fiery furnace. You know, so, so, and, and it says that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I want to put aside for the sake of time, uh, I'll just point out that, biblically speaking, weeping and gnashing have nothing to do with torment. But putting that aside, it, either way, even if we wanted to treat it as torment, this suggests that the weeping and gnashing lasts so long as it takes to be burned up. I mean, let me ask you this. If a human being were thrown into a furnace of fire, wouldn't there be you know, a period of time where they're weeping and gnashing, according to your understanding of those terms? Sure. If they were burned up, would that weeping and gnashing cease? Sure. Okay, great. Uh, let's talk about, I think you also mentioned Matthew 8, 12's, uh, or Matthew 8's weeping and gnashing. 
Yeah. Um, you got about 30 seconds, Chris, about 30 seconds. Oh, I do? Well, then I'm just going to uh, address Matthew 8:12 in case Mike doesn't get to it. This is a parable. This is not a, um, a literal description of what's going to happen in eternity. And parables depict earthly scenes. And this is an earthly scene in which there's a wedding feast being held in a wedding hall. Um, there, there are parallels where you can look at, where you can read about a servant being bound hand and foot and thrown out of the wedding hall into the outer darkness. Where and if a human, if a person is bound hand and foot and thrown out of a wedding hall in first century Jerusalem in the night, they're going to die from exposure or from hunger or or from robbers unless they're saved. And since we're both not, since neither of us are universalists, yet again, weeping and gnashing is something that is limited in duration. So I'll end there and turn the microphone over to Mike. All right, Mike, you got five minutes, my friend. Okay, is, is this closing statement time? I just want to make sure I'm tracking with. No, it's no. your last question. Oh, the question. Oh, I see. Um, okay, so when it says that the because you, you, you mentioned the chaff being burned up and um, the dead bodies being consumed and all of those things, do you imagine? Do you take it that that sort of language is meant to underscore the destruction that will befall the wicked? If by destruction you mean what I mean, yes. If by destruction you mean what you mean, no. And the reason I say that is because God, you know, it's often it's often said by traditionalists, look, God was using imagery people were familiar with. But then they'll quote uh, Revelation in which people are tormented for eternity. So if God wanted to give symbolism in which, who's, who's, uh, that would lead people to think of, everlasting torment in living bodies that last forever, he could have done so. <laughs> but these are not what these images do. They're imagery rep- repeated throughout the whole of Scripture. These are images in which people are slain. Their dead bodies are consumed and destroyed. And in the absence of literally any exegetical reason to believe otherwise, then yeah, I take them as, indi- as, as imagery uh, talking about the final destruction of the wicked, that final destruction being permanent everlasting death. Okay, so we're, we're, we seem to be agreed then that all of this is meant to illustrate and to teach that the wicked will undergo everlasting destruction and that the disagreement is just over what the nature of the destruction is. In uh, perhaps a similar way uh, in which we both agree as to the eternal punishment of the wicked, the disagreement is just over the nature of the punishment. Is that correct? I appreciate you saying that because, yes, that's correct. Okay, okay. Then I, I just want to make sure that I was uh, attempting to uh, address your concerns when you're when you're bringing up these passages that emphasize destruction. I just want you to know that yeah, I I agree that the, in fact they do, but uh, well, but, but the nature clear, of our disagreement my... is over the the nature of the destruction. Right, and and what I was trying to explain was that these were I'm, I wasn't just picking texts at random. I was picking texts that are typically used to support. In fact, texts that you've used in the case of weeping and gnashing to support everlasting torment. And what I just demonstrated is that nothing there is in view. So in the absence of an exegetical reason from any text whatsoever to take those as referring to everlasting torment rather than everlasting death in the sense of being killed and never living again, um, I see no reason to see it the way that you do. Okay, well, even, even apart from how one construes weeping and gnashing, I think you've already said that uh, the punishment for sin includes a a finite span of conscious suffering, which is then preceded by death, which results in annihilation. No, no, I don't. I think that the punishment for sin is simply uh, a violent death, a violent privation of life. Um, In other words... 
So suffering gonna, isn't, isn't, isn't part of the equation then. Let me put it this way. I don't take the two separately. You know, you talk about sin or, or the wages of sin requiring a finite duration of suffering followed by death. No, I, I don't. I don't separate the two those way. Justice demands. Are they two different execution. things or are they the same? Well, I think Jesus suffered as part of his execution. They're different things, but they're part of the same punishment. Okay, no, that's that's all I'm saying is that they're two things that can be conceptually isolated and, and thought about, and that they, they're not identical. Um, situations that in the, one can die without suffering, that one can suffer without dying. They're they're not identical. They're they're two different. Yeah, it's yeah. The head side of a coin is not identical to the tail side, but it's one coin. Sure. So, but but you do think that the punishment for sin includes both the suffering and the the dying? Is that right? Uh. So that Jesus, yeah, for example, I mean, wouldn't have not, paid the punishment for sin if he just died without suffering. Well, I actually would have no problem with that because it doesn't say that the wages of sin is suffering and death. It says the wages of sin is death. So I actually don't think that God would be uh, unable to do that. Um, I just don't know. I don't know. Okay. Uh, what I do know, or I, what I should say is what I believe, is that the wages of sin is death. Whether it also requires suffering, I don't know. I think Jesus suffered, sure, and I'm inclined to believe that the wicked will too. But it's not because I believe that God's got some number of... Meet, some number of units of punishment that he's got to meet out sure, by means of sure. Um Okay, well, then I suppose I'll just ask you this. Why do you think that the wicked will suffer for a finite span before being killed? Uh, well, number one, because uh, Jude says that, uh, and Peter both, say that the uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of what awaits the ungodly, which yet again supports my view. And in both cases, people suffered as part of their death. Um, now that doesn't. I, I, could God have simply flipped the switch? I suppose that's possible. That's not what He did do, though. And in the case of Christ, could He have simply flipped the switch if the, death, if the wages of sin is death? I think it's possible. Um, but He did it by means of a death that entailed suffering. And so I'm inclined to believe that the wicked will. But again, not because I think that there's some units of punishment that have to be meted out, but rather because that's the those are the examples we have. Okay. So then to sort of illustrate the way my my position would. Go to be motivated. You got about thirty is, seconds, Mike. You got about thirty seconds. Sure, is that you've got this uh, indication that the wicked will suffer consciously for at least some time, and then uh, whether you base that on the weeping and gnashing of teeth or on the basis of other considerations, uh, you've got that, and then you've got these theological arguments, which I think support the conclusion that the wicked will continue to exist. Forever, and then when you combine the two, you, you uh, end up with the conclusion that they will continue to exist forever in a state of conscious torment. And I and I think that would be a good case if those theological arguments were persuasive, but I don't think that they are. And I think that the right, text Chris, rules them out. Okay, Chris, because uh, we just don't we're not going to have time to give you guys each sure. five minutes. Sorry, sorry about that. Take three minutes to wrap up, and then Mike, I'll have you take three minutes to wrap up. All right, three minutes. Oh, boy. We'll do. Oh. oh, sorry. Okay. That's fine. All right. So, uh, you know, boy, this is tough with, with, with only three minutes instead of five. Okay, let me just put it this way. Um, I think what I've demonstrated is that the Bible teaches that the impenitent will not be risen immortal. They will not rise and live forever. They will instead be killed, which is why the punishment Jesus bore in our place was death. And I don't think that one can respond to that by using what I think are spurious uh, theological arguments for which there are good answers. Um, I don't think, and furthermore, uh, 
I think that the texts that are traditionally used in support of final punishment are texts which are better support, for my view, uh, texts which are better consistent with the biblical themes of immortality, death, and atonement. Eternal punishment, is, as we've seen, is by means of eternal fire, which is what destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The worm which will not die and the fire which will not be quenched, irresistibly consume corpses, corpses which will never rise a second time, which is why Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, alluding to that language, that hell will entail eternal destruction. As we've seen, weeping and gnashing of teeth lasts only as long as, long as it takes to be burned up or killed. Smoke rises forever from torment in a highly symbolic vision, using that smoke rising forever torment uh, imagery to refer to the destruction of cities and the slaying of their inhabitants. Uh, death and Hades are thrown into a lake of fire, as admitted by my um, respected um, friend here, Mike. Uh, symbolism communicating that they'll come to an end. There will no longer be any death. Uh, and I think we can treat the imagery consistently by saying everything thrown into it will come to an end. It will no longer live. It will no longer be around. It will no longer be functioning, whatever. Which is why John and God himself both interpret the imagery in plain, straightforward language as symbolizing the second death of human beings. Now, any theological or philosophical argument that all of that is untrue is an argument against the truthfulness and authority of Scripture. But since we evangelicals believe that what the Bible says is trustworthy, the conclusions that we draw from theology and philosophy must be consistent with what the Bible says. If they are not, then we have incorrectly applied those disciplines, and we have got to abandon those conclusions in favor of other conclusions, conclusions which instead are consistent with the biblical question of immortality and eternal life, the biblical language of destruction, and the biblical nature of the atonement, all of which tell us that, yes, the Bible does teach annihilationism. Thank you. I'll end it there. Go ahead, Mike. Three minutes. All right. Well, as I can uh, recall, we seem to have had three arguments on behalf of annihilationism, uh, one of them being the argument that immortality is granted only to the saved. Uh, with this, I completely agree. The saved alone will possess uh, bodies which on their own will be sufficient to continue their life. Uh, this is not something that will be given to the damned. And so that, it seems to me, doesn't entail the annihilationist conclusion, given that God, just as he now sustains our mortal bodies and prevents our mortal bodies from dying, that he could continue to sustain the mortal bodies of the wicked and prevent them from dying. So this argument, based on the nature of immortality, seems to me to be a non-sequitur. We've got the argument on the basis of the language of destruction. But, of course, we both agree that uh, Jesus underwent the punishment that our very sin dictated be paid. And so we, while we both agree that Jesus underwent everlasting destruction... I think that this shows that it's possible to undergo everlasting destruction without ceasing to exist. Because, in fact, Jesus did not cease to exist after having died on the cross. <clears throat> and to reiterate my own arguments, we've got considerations related to God's love for all mankind. If God wills good... At as part of his love for all mankind, then as long as it's true that one can't will good for a particular individual unless that individual exists, then as long as God loves a particular individual, that individual will continue to exist. So that if God loves a particular individual forever, that individual will exist forever. Given that God loves everyone, it follows that everyone will exist 
forever. Now, as you have seen, one can avoid this argument only by saying not just that God loves people in different ways and has special kinds of love for different sorts of people. One can only avoid the force of this argument by saying that God fails to love the wicked in any sense at a certain point in time. And it seems to me that that's just unacceptable both for theological and scriptural reasons. Uh, we've also got the argument based on the intrinsic value of human existence. It seems to me that if human existence is valuable regardless of its state, then even the wicked sinner who deserves punishment is valuable to God. Now, to say that something is valuable but is no longer valued seems to me to be a contradiction. If I find something valuable... Okay, Mike, okay, Mike we got to end it there, my friend. All righty. got about 20 seconds. Wanna want to really thank you guys both for coming on the show. And uh, I think that was a good debate and good discussion, and hopefully that uh, it will get people digging a little deeper on these issues. And uh, maybe we can do a round two sometime. What do you guys say? It'd be I'd my pleasure. be up for it if Chris is. Absolutely. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Mike. I've had a great time. As have I. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, guys. And thank you, Devin. Um, yeah. All right. God bless. All right, join us next week. We are going to be having uh, Dr. Sadler back on. We're going to do a two-hour show on St. Thomas Aquinas, his life, his works. And uh, last time we we did a show with him on uh, St. Anselm, and uh, a lot of people really love that show. So, again, tune in next week, uh, Thursday, 6 Eastern until 8. We'll have Dr. Sadler here, and we will be uh, going over the life and works of Thomas Aquinas. Thanks again. God bless. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology?